Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. Recently, I sent out a survey for people to submit questions for me and Bob to answer. But a number of the questions were not really up Bob's alley, so I decided I would just answer them on my own. This, and there were no names associated with the question, so I'm just going to read the questions. This first person asked the question, and it was not really a question, it's more of a statement, the mother and son relationship that doesn't look normal. So I'm suspecting that this person is like, hey, you know, talk about mother-son relationships that don't look normal. Well, uh, there's a lot to say, because I don't exactly, I'm not exactly sure what you're referring to, the person who submitted this. But the first question is, what is normal, right? And there's a lot of dimensions we can think think about, uh, and I want to delineate between two main ones. One is the difference between, quote-unquote, normal and healthy and pathological or unhealthy. So we can have a spectrum from normal healthy to abnormal unhealthy. The other dimension we can think about is culturally approved of versus culturally disapproved of. So sometimes these dimensions coincide and sometimes they do not. For example, you can have a relationship between a mother and a son in which the mother relies way too much on the son and the son feels as though he can't ever leave the house, and there's a lot of dependency going on between the two of them, over-dependency. And so in this uh, example, both culturally it would look strange to people, and it would also be abnormal and unhealthy, meaning that the son and the mother, for that matter, are not able to get their full range of their needs met because of the limitations of their anxiety that drives them too close together and to keep other people out. So in that situation, the mother-son relationship is both unhealthy and culturally stigmatized. But it's a little interesting that we're focusing on mother-son. And the reason why, I think, is because we have a particular bee up our bonnet culturally regarding mother-son, mother and sons, uh, mothers and sons being close. Whenever there's a, a son, a boy, a man who is close to their mother— occasionally it's seen as a good thing, like, oh, you know, he loves his mom, that's great. But other time, a lot of times it's stigmatized as he's a mama's boy, he's still being controlled by his mother, the mother can't let go of him. And a lot of times it's the spouses of the man who are complaining about this. And in my opinion, and I've observed this many times, where the relationship is not necessarily unhealthy, it might not be particularly healthy, but it's not particularly unhealthy, but society will label this relationship as being very unhealthy because cultural does, culture does not like these kinds of arrangements where sons are really close to their mothers. So let's say that you meet a fella and you start dating him and you find out that he uh, talks to his mom every day on the phone. Every day on the phone, he talks with his mom for a half an hour and they just they talk every day. They check in. Maybe sometimes they visit. A lot of people in our culture would stigmatize that. They would say, there's something wrong with him. Why is he talking to his mom every day? I mean, grow up, let it go. Why we do this? Well, I think it's because we have a heuristic that we developed for good reasons, because there are some children, regardless of gender, who are overly dependent on their parents and not able to get their needs met because they're too afraid to live without their parents taking care of them. And so... As a shortcut, we end up applying the judgment to that situation to any relationship in which a son is close to their mother. 
because uh, the point is is that some some children are close to their parents, some adult children are close to their parents in a healthy way, and some are close to their parents in an unhealthy way. But because we value as a society independence, particularly from our parents, we will pathologize anything, and we will pathologize that. The other thing is, is we're particularly interested as a culture in men being independent. We want men to stand on their own two feet. We want men to be unemotional. We want men to be competent. We want men to ride off into the sunset uh, alone and able to do things on their own and not have to depend on their mother. What's wrong with a grown child depending on their parents if their parents are good people? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with a grown child, including men, being close to their mothers? What's wrong with that? (laughs) But we have this massive amounts of stigma. And when I would watch that reality show, Smothered, y'all, some of you would ask me to watch that show, I found myself reacting to this very stigma a lot because a a lot of the, uh, you know, because it was daughter-mother combos on that show. Some of them were problematic, but a lot of them were not. A lot of them were just people who were in a relationship that was different than what maybe other people would have. Now, I will say sometimes there are configurations systemically between parents and adult children, where from the outside and inside, it might appear to be healthy, but it actually isn't healthy because the adult child has submerged their needs so far, they don't even know they're in a relationship that is unfair to them. So that's what I'll say to that one. Another question here, the the unrealistic expectations on love and romance, thanks to movies, songs, books, and social media. Yeah, absolutely. Massive destructive uh, component in our society where with movies and songs and books and social media, as you say, there are all these expectations put on us about love and romance and sexuality, for that matter, that are completely unattainable, just completely unattainable. The rom-coms where you have the couple who... Uh, you know they they have the cute they have the meat cute and then they have their courtship and it's quirky and they're falling in love and then they have the massive barrier that they run into and they drift apart but then in the very last moment they come together and they ride off into the sunset happily ever after when relationships are never like that <laughs> they're literally never like that uh, sexuality in porn or even in casual you know scenes in a in a R-rated movie or something, or PG movie. These are also completely unrealistic. Um, you know, sexuality in its real form is not very filmable. <laughs> you know, it's 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 real. It's human, and uh, the way that they depict it in movies and TV is is you know one possibility, but not likely. So, yeah, it's unrelenting. The messages that are given to us. And unless you have someone there to help you contextualize all this, you know, it's it's going to be hard to have any self-esteem because you're going to be looking at your romantic life, looking at your love life, looking at your sexual life and thinking, what's wrong with me? It doesn't look like it does in the movies and songs and books and social media. Um, on a certain level, I kind of get it because a lot of art emerges out of high emotions and a lot of high emotions occur in the beginning of a love relationship in the beginning of a romantic relationship. And so, you know, a lot of songs, a lot of movies, a lot of books, a lot of social media posts are going to be made about those beginning fun moments. 
and you know the ups and downs of it. Not a lot of people are feeling huge emotions about being married to someone for 15 years. I mean, you'll have emotions for sure, but it's not going to be overwhelming, addictive love usually at that point. So it's just not a very interesting story to tell for us as tellers or as listeners. So I think that also plays into it for sure. But we could do better as a society, not only about creating art that depicts what, you know, 99%. So let's say you're in a relationship or no, let's say you're in 10 long-term relationships throughout your life. Okay. From the time you're 15 until you're 85, you are in 10 long-term relationships. Some relationships are a year, some relationships are 30 years. 99% of the time that you spend with those 10 partners are in periods of emotionality that are beyond that first initial love period. There's a better way of phrasing that. Uh, The vast majority of time you spend with your partners, no matter how many you spend in your life, are spent in that time zone of your relationship when things are not very hot and heavy. So... Uh, we should have some art from that period of time, right? <laughs> we shouldn't be completely focused on the first year of every single, uh, whenever we're talking about love or romance, whenever we're making a movie or a song or uh, some kind of social media post, you know, we we shouldn't be focusing. We could focus on that a little bit, obviously, because it's a part of a relationship, but how come we're just ignoring the other 99% of the relationship? And for sure, there are examples of this, but for whatever reason, as a culture or just even how we are born, we enjoy stories of transition. We don't like stories in which everything stays the same. We want something that feels familiar, and we also want something that changes. When Luke Skywalker transitions from a snotty, snot-nosed, whiny farm boy and ends up becoming a war hero, that's what we like to see. What we don't like to see is just a movie about a farm boy who stays a farm boy and nothing changes in his life. The same goes for love and romance in movies and other art forms is we want to see something change. And so anytime, so you can easily focus on the beginning of a relationship because you can go from being single to being in a relationship. Or if you're in a relationship, we want to see that person change. And one of the main ways that we can depict that in a story is if they cheat or they get divorced. It's actually one of the reasons why a lot of therapists are, or some therapists are biased towards breaking up their clients. That when, as a couple, you'll go into to see a couple's therapist, and I've, I've run into this with therapists when I'm supervising them or consulting with them, that th- whenever they run into a problem, you know, a couple or even an individual, particularly individual therapy. So an individual comes into therapy, starts complaining about their spouse. There's this compulsion in the therapist that unless they're aware of and work against, they will actually manifest their desire for the client to divorce or break up with their spouse. There's this knee-jerk reaction that a lot of people have, and therapists too, to just be like, well, let's, let's make a change. You know, If you're complaining and you don't like your life, let's make a change because when we make changes, then good things happen, right? But that's not always true, obviously. Now, having said that, a lot of therapy can do a lot of good by helping people to break up with their partners. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there's this knee-jerk reaction that I see a lot of therapists have that is reflective of our um, desire for certain stories to be told. 
All right, this next question says, my partner and I want to adopt children for, from foster care, but we are lower middle class. Do you think that children can thrive even if we are not rich? End of question. Yes, of course. This is a massive misunderstanding, particularly in the United States, that in order to raise children, you must be extremely financially well off. I, I have talked with so many young couples where they will say, well, we can't have kids yet because, you know, we were not financially set. And the thing is, is uh, a lot of people, uh, when, they, when they're talking about being financially set, I'm always like, well, what? And I'm not telling people they should have kids, but I just want to question that culture. You know, do I believe it to be sort of a cultural oppression that is put on people that because uh, there's all these notions out there of just like, if you have children when you aren't financially ready, then you're a bad human being. You're a bad parent. You're a bad person. But where is that? And certainly we might be able to say there's a there's a line, you know, like if, well, I won't go into the details, but you're, if you're below a certain line money-wise and access to resources-wise, then, yeah, it would probably probably be unwise to have children. Uh, but even then, uh, the the thing that I want to emphasize is that Children need a lot of things that don't really have a lot to do with being upper middle class, for example. Uh, children need food, shelter, uh, attunement, love, safety, attention, fun, creativity, exploration, friendship. And money has something to do with that, but not a lot. You can be extremely uh, you know, financially insecure and well not extremely <laughs> let me back up uh, well so the question that the person is asking is you know they're thinking about adopting but they are lower middle class okay what does lower middle class mean exactly well i don't know it sort of depends uh on on a lot of things but lower middle class to me sounds like you're doing okay you're not a mate you're not doing amazingly well but you're you know you're doing okay you're not living paycheck to paycheck probably have health care, that kind of thing. Can Is it irresponsible for you to have children? No, <laughs> absolutely not. Particularly when I think about for my own childhood, my parents were not rich, but, uh, you know, they made do. We couldn't buy nice things for us. And my friends sometimes would buy, th- you know, my, their parents would buy nice things for them. I'll never forget. I had this really good friend of mine and we were in PE at school and we would rotate different sports that we would play. And we were coming up on playing softball or baseball or something in PE at school. We were in like the seventh, eighth grade. And my friend, uh, he did not play sports. And so he didn't have a baseball mitt. But his parents heard that he was going to play softball or baseball at school. And so they, just for a week at school, and they bought him a brand new baseball mitt. And I remember being so upset about that because for me to get a brand new base, I I played baseball (laughs) and I probably used the same baseball mitt for four years or something. And to, for me to ask for another baseball mitt would have just been absurd. Just to be like, hey, particularly since, you know, for him, he was just going to play baseball for a week and the school had baseball mitts for him. He just wanted a good baseball mitt. And I was so jealous of that. <laughs> so anyway, my family was not, you know, doing well financially, but I was loved. My parents were there for me. We had enough, you know, uh, to to survive 
now I'm not saying we were destitute by any means, but anyway, I, I just feel like our materialism is completely out of control. Uh, and we are focused way too much on wealth as a marker of who you are as a person and also whether or not you're a viable parent. Like I said, parents, what they need to do is provide love, attunement, safety, attention, these kinds of things. And you could argue that money actually gets in the way of that sometimes because people sometimes that have a lot of money, they, they have to work a lot or they will pay for nannies and this kind of thing. And nannies are okay, but, but sometimes uh, the lifestyle of someone that doesn't have a lot of wealth and resources facilitates better parenting because you're, I think, anecdotally, more likely to spend time around your children. You, you can't afford to go on trips, and so you're just sort of stuck with each other. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm making a lot of generalizations. Like I said, there's a certain amount of money that absolutely needs to facilitate uh, just life, right? If you're completely below the poverty line, then you're going to be so traumatized by trying to get money, by worrying about food and shelter and living in a bad neighborhood where, uh, you know, security isn't very good. So it's not like money has nothing to do with parenting, but uh, the way the person asked the question, I'm like, yeah, you don't need to, you're lower middle class. You're thinking about adopting a child, if you if you if you think that you can handle it, then yeah. <laughs> and I'm I'm guessing the only reason why you're even asking the question is because of our weird culture that we live in. This next question says, "What do you find joy in? What do you find joy in?" Well, the first thing that comes to mind is my dogs. Although my dogs are can be extremely annoying sometimes, <laughs> just a lot of work and barky and dirty and. They don't listen, <laughs> but I get a lot of joy from my dogs. Um, also, making content for this podcast with my friends. I don't know if people know this, maybe if you're new to the podcast. All my guests are my friends. Bob and Umberto are my best friends way before we started the podcast. Rebecca is a close friend of mine from the university as well. So imagine... And then way back in the day when I had other co-hosts, a lot of them were f friends of mine too. Mandy was a close friend of mine as a cousin. And then all the way back in the beginning, Lita was my best friend going back to preschool. So pretty much everyone that I've involved in the podcast are not only my friends, but extremely close friends of mine. <laughs> so it's really fun to make content with them. And uh, I find a lot of joy in that. <laughs> And also, while I'm on the topic, there's something unique about being on a podcast conversation as opposed to in person. When Umberto and I are in person, our conversations can be very similar, but there's something very, I don't know, enhanced about being on a podcast because there's no distractions, our phones are turned off, we are interested in kind of bouncing off of each other instead of being distracted by this and that. And so sometimes, or with Bob, for example, we have intense conversations, but the, being on the podcast, it's almost like you have more intense, depending on the situation. But uh, so the podcast in some ways has made me closer to these people. So I get a lot of joy in that. Um, hanging with my family and my friends now that the pandemic is uh, loosening, 
I'm able to hang out with family members and friend groups without masks on and um, hug them and, and hang out with them and not wear masks. And it's um, very joyful for me. And another thing is uh, my wife, spending time with my wife, going on date nights. It's always fun to just um, hang out with her. Uh, have a lot, we have a lot of joy in our life. Uh, next question. As someone with avoidant personality disorder, how do I help d- develop my sense of self? So uh, with any personality disorder or with any issue that leads to not having a quote-unquote sense of self, I prefer to use the term connection with the self. Um, I mean, sense of self is fine as well, but people say lack, people lack a, a, a self or something. Anyway, so connection with self or sense of self is fine. Anyway, with any condition that results in you not being in connection with your emotions, in connection with who you are, in connection with what you want, is earn security. You have to be in relationships where you feel secure, where they listen to you. Uh, and you feel safe. Very, very important to develop a sense of self. The other uh, component, the second component, is asking yourself and having other people ask you a bunch of questions like, how do you feel right now? What do you want right now? And not allowing destructive thinking patterns to shut down the answer to that question, which can take a long time. I've worked with people on a sense of self for years and years and years. We might be six years into the process, and when I ask them, what do you want right now? They will say something along the lines of what they want, but then they'll very quickly beat themselves up. Like, well, you know, I don't know why I feel like I deserve that. And it's these eternalized voices from their parents telling them, abusive parents telling them that they don't deserve things. And so, uh, but that's part of it. So earn security, feeling safe in a relationship so that you can actually explore yourself within a secure relationship, which can be in therapy. Second is asking, how do I feel and what do I want? How do I feel right now? What do I want right now? How do I feel right now? What do I want right now? In the beginning, you won't have answers to those questions, but don't worry. Just keep asking. You won't know the answer unless you ask the question. And the third thing is time. It takes time to develop it. A lot of people try to rush this. It takes a lot of time. Like I said, I've been working with clients on this issue for years, and we only get like you know 30% down the road. But that 30% of connection with the self is definitely better than nothing. All right, this next question, the person actually submitted their name, Juan from Brooklyn, New York. They said, have you felt powerless when working with clients, especially clients you may consider challenging? End of question. Absolutely, all the time. Feeling powerless is a a very frequent feeling as a therapist. There are so many things that I, as a caring human being, and also someone who's being hired to change people, uh, I, I will feel powerless about. A client will have ongoing emotional issues or uh, relationship problems from the fact that they don't have a sense of who they are or they're in an abusive relationship and they find it really hard to leave or the couple coming to therapy is fighting about similar issues uh, you know week in and week out and as a person who cares about them and also is hired to change that I'm doing my best to change it, and it doesn't change. It just keeps happening, or it changes very, very slowly. And in the beginning, I used to fight it. I used to be like, oh, I've got to be different. Or I would blame my clients, and I would say, what's wrong with you? How come you're not changing? You know, I wouldn't say that, but uh, the, the insecurity that results from that powerlessness 
can result in a lot of therapists feeling inadequate and then they don't want to face that inadequacy so they end up blaming their clients for some reason or other. They might even terminate with the clients. So yeah, that, that powerlessness is a is a welcomed part of being a therapist now for me because if I don't welcome it, then I'll fight it. And so I just say to myself, you know what, I'm powerless and that's fine. <laughs> I mean, what gave me the idea that I would have power over someone else's psychology what gave me the idea that somehow I would have power over um, or the power to heal someone with like, you know, a year of therapy. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, it can sometimes. Therapy can be very rapid, but it usually isn't when it comes to the big issues. All right, let's take a break. When we get back, let's answer more questions. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become an annual patron, it would be really great if you could do that. We have on Patreon, they started allowing the different, you know, usually people are monthly patrons, but we're asking that people switch from monthly to annual. And if you're not a patron, becoming an annual patron would be really great. You get a discount, uh, like a 10% discount, I think. So you win and we win because we get to plan for the future because there's, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs in the patron number and it's hard to know what's going to happen in the future. And if, if everyone's an annual patron, which again, you win because you save money, then, um, but we win as well because we can plan for the future anyway. So uh, do that now. You might have to go into your, uh, if you, you can, you can stay a patron. I think you just switch over to annual, I, I, I think. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, also, I want to do an OPP for an old patron praise of patrons who have been patrons since September of 2017. So these individuals have been patrons all the way since September 2017. We have Susanna from Cranston, Rhode Island. We have T from Tokyo, uh, T Iwasaki. We have Torleaf from Oslo and Tracy from St. Paul, Minnesota. We have Timothy from Fairbanks, Alaska. We have Nick from Australia, New South Wales. We have Melissa from Beaverton, Oregon. We have Katie from Oakland, California. Claude from Greenwich, Connecticut. And Catherine from Brookline, Mass., who is actually a more deserving listener. So Catherine is an upper-tier patron. Thank you so much, the bunch of you, Susanna, T, Torleaf, Tracy, Timothy, Nick, Melissa, Katie, Claude, and Catherine, for being patrons, but also sticking with us through thick and thin since the very begin. <laughs> I'm rhyming. Okay, so let's get back to some of these questions here. Um, let's see. What do you think can be done to improve the accessibility of therapy? Well, it's complicated, but for me, it and you've heard me rant about this before, it comes down to tax dollars. You need to spend tax dollars on mental health and on therapy in general. What would that mean? Well, what that would mean is that you are one giving people money so that they can see therapists for free who can't afford it. Otherwise you also want to have, you know, federal grants for uh, clinicians who are for people who want to become a clinician, but can't afford to go to school you want to spend money on public health measures to raise awareness and, and, and do research so that people can have access. 
tax dollars, tax dollars, tax dollars, which means you have to vote for politicians who will allocate those tax dollars and maybe even raise taxes to do this. To do this. Whenever people talk about accessibility to therapy, I find that everyone's just like um, yelling at the insurance companies or something. And the insurance companies are private businesses. It'd be like yelling at McDonald's for the fact that, um, you know, they're killing uh, beef. They're killing cows. Like if, like you're a vegetarian and you're just going to yell at McDonald's. Well, McDonald's is a business and people want meat. They want hamburgers. It's not, it's not McDonald's responsibility to change society. Now, you can make an argument about that. But the point is, is that if we're going to change, you know, if you're going to, uh, if you're going to change the beef industry, you have to have laws that are in place that regulate that. You can't blame McDonald's and we can't blame the insurance companies. We can blame them for some things, but we can't blame them for the, for the system. That's for sure. And so what we need are tax dollars and we need politicians who will allocate tax dollars and we need voters to vote for politicians that allocate tax dollars. You know, there's not a lot of people out there, or at least not a lot of people in my circle who are saying, how are we going to increase the amount of military so that we can protect our interests abroad or in the United States. Why don't we have a lot of people picketing about that sort of thing? Well, it's because we apparently vote for politicians who allocate a lot of tax dollars to the military, and we have an extremely robust military, the biggest in the world, I think. So no one's complaining about, at least not a lot of people are complaining, about the fact that the military isn't too big or isn't big enough. Why is that? Well, because we vote for politicians who allocate tax dollars to that cause. So if we just decided as a voting population, anyway, I keep repeating. The other thing that we could do is we could have public service announcements by the government or by uh, whatever to, including this podcast, by the way, that raises awareness about therapy and also helps people to know where to go. Uh, We also need more therapists and clients who are going to speak out. It's a stigmatized thing, which I find to just be really ridiculous. And I almost wish that we didn't say mental health issues or mental health accessibility, because certainly that's a thing. But really, it's a broader topic. Therapy is not just about mental health. Therapy is also about, like, finding out who you are. That's not, that, that's not a mental illness or improving your relationship, and, you know, improving your marriage. That's not a mental illness or regulating your emotions that's not a mental illness so i think we need to broaden what we what we even call it because i think sometimes it sounds too narrow you know there's a lot of benefits for everyone going to therapy Um, the older i get the more i realize that everyone everyone needs a lot of years of therapy (laughs) I, i would venture to say everyone i have ever met long enough so that i know their personalities and their issues needs minimum 15 years of therapy. So um, uh, so we need as therapists to be talking about it more and we need clients themselves to be talking. And people are doing more and more, you know, Prince Harry, for example, is talking about it. Is he still called Prince? Anyway, um, we, need to imp- we need to pressure insurance companies, private insurance companies to pay for it in the United States and have more parity. We need to show more positive examples of therapy in TVs and movies because almost all of it is unethical where the therapist either tries to kill their client or tries to have sex with their client. And also we need to socialize children 
so that they understand that emotions are okay and asking for help is okay and going to therapy is okay. All right, next question. How the legal system works for cases of sexual assault and abuse, is it effective? So the question is, is the legal system effective for working with cases of sexual assault and abuse? Well, we've done full episodes on this before. The episode which we did on Unbelievable, the Netflix series with, uh, we had Christy Forrester on as a guest and um, uh, Christy talked really eloquently and uh, powerfully about her experiences after she was sexually assaulted and what she went through with the legal system and just how abusive it is to victims. And so is the legal system effective? Well, you know, it depends on what we mean by effective. Are we talking about justice? Are we talking about ethical treatment of the victim? Are we talking about ethical treatment of the perpetrator? It can be effective, but it can also be completely ineffective. And uh, if you want to, if you if you're not familiar, you can watch the TV show, Netflix TV show called Unbelievable. It's a like a ten episode. It's a true story that's recreated. And or you can listen to our episode on Unbelievable that we made a few, couple years ago. Next question: How to know you're ready to date again after a breakup? How do you know you're ready to date again after a breakup? Well. You just have to ask yourself a bunch of questions. A lot of people will just uh, attach this to a time span. Like, well, you know, you probably should spend about a year. And, and I'm always like, how do you know that universally for every human being, regardless of the circumstances, that it's a year of time between breaking up and being with someone else? Like, this doesn't make any sense. So you want to ask yourself a lot of questions. And here are some of the questions you want to ask. Do you want to date again? That's an important question. And if you don't have a connection with yourself, you not you might not be able to answer that question. So you might have to spend some time getting no, you know, going to therapy, having secure relationships and figuring out who you are before you can even ask that question or answer it. So another question you want to ask yourself is how will I feel if I fall in love with someone again? Because if you're not ready to fall in love again, you know, that could affect things. Doesn't mean you can't date, but it does mean that it just should, you know, be a thought process in your mind. Also, you want to ask yourself, how will you feel if you get dumped? How will you feel if you get dumped? Or how will you feel if you have to dump someone else? Because when you start dating, chances are someone's going to dump someone. Someone's going to ghost someone. Someone's going to dump someone. Someone's going to cheat on someone. It's going to happen. And if you just broke up with someone and you're not ready to be dumped again, you know, say you get dumped and you're like, hmm, should I start dating? Well, don't have a fantasy that things are going to work out because they usually don't. Nine times, I don't know the stats, but the vast, vast majority of relationships that begin end tragically <laughs> and and quickly. You know, I don't know the average span of a relationship, but I, I would venture to say that on average people have, you know, a dozen important romantic relationships in their lifetime. And most of those have you know issues where someone gets dumped anyway the other question so you have to ask yourself are you ready for that process because if you're not ready then that's that tells you so another question you want to ask is what sort of relationship are you looking for this is important because for some people there's this this um you know black and white thinking of like well if you're dating you're looking for a spouse and that's not true a lot of people can you can date casually but the key is you have to tell your people you're dating that that's the case you want to say so by the way i'm not looking for a spouse i'm not looking for a partner 
I'm, I'm just taking things slow, really slow. Um, and, uh, you know, just, you know, that's okay. Or are you looking for an, a spouse and you're ready for that? Totally cool too. Another question you want to ask yourself is, are you running from something? Are you running into dating because you are uh, trying to avoid something? Now, this is actually kind of a, a gray zone for me because a lot of people, when they break, when they have, when they break up with someone, or they get dumped and, uh, from a long-term relationship, there's a lot of feelings, obviously, right? And dating would be kind of an oasis or kind of a distraction, or maybe some kind of antidote to feeling as though you're not lovable, right? So, on some level, uh, and I consider that to be totally fine under some circumstances. So. You can't, after a breakup, you might head into dating actually because you are trying to uh, right a wrong. You're, you're dating as a way of saying, am I lovable? Um, or am I attractive? Or you're trying to distract yourself from the fact that you just got out, of a, got out of a tough relationship. I think that's okay. I mean, there's nothing empirically wrong with that. But what I would say is ill-advised is if you say you you got dumped and you're grieving a lot and you're you're crying and you're drinking and you're struggling and you're just trying to get through the day and you're thinking well if i date someone i won't have to think about this anymore you know in that situation i would say it's probably not uh, advised now is the dating part the ill advised part no the ill advised part is the avoidance of what you're running from right you can still, uh, if you didn't avoid it, you could still date, I think. But, uh, yeah. And like I said in early segment, earlier segments in this episode, our culture is really busted up when it comes to this issue. And you're not going to find a lot of support. There's some, there's, like I said, there's this weird, um, there's this weird rule that after you break up from a relationship, you're supposed to wait some some span of time. And I, I always just find that to be just really silly. Now, if you want to wait that span of time, you want to span, you want to wait a year, you want to wait 10 years, totally fine. But it's not universal to humans that they have to wait a certain amount of time. Next question. How can you overcome feeling incompetent? How can you overcome feeling incompetent? Well, it's a tough question to answer briefly, but what I will briefly say is that you want to have little successes. And as you have little successes that are attainable, then you will start to feel competent. You'll start to feel as though, hey, I can, you know, uh, this feeling of incompetence is a feeling because you have been made to believe you are incompetent, either by someone telling you are incompetent or by someone giving you tasks that were inherently difficult for you to complete. So... Uh, to gain competence, gain a feeling of competence, you have to have a lot of success under your belt. And, you know, if you engineer that. The other thing is having earned security when people love you and you have safety in relationships. We tend to just feel better and more competent things. Another question. Do twins have more trouble with differentiation and defining the sense of self apart from other people? Do twins have more trouble with differentiation and defining the sense of self apart from other people? The question is, no, uh, there's no research that demonstrates that uh, twins can have the same issues as everyone else has. We, t- we tend to look at twins as these odd creatures, like they're from another planet. Twins can attest to this. They'll just be like, yeah, whenever I say, say that I'm a twin, people freak out. So uh, twins aren't 
that different. There are some differences in terms of how they're raised, obviously, but and their experience. But in terms of questions like having trouble with differentiation more, no. Could be, you know, I, I understand where the question comes from. You're just like, well, to differentiate, you have to know yourself and you have to be able to know that you're separate from other people. But when you're a twin, you're from the day you're conceived, you're constantly next to this other person. And would that person have a harder time differentiating? And the issue is is no. The answer is no, because differentiation doesn't have to do with being close to a sibling. It has to do with the way your parents were and the way that differentiation and anxiety was handled in the in the family. So uh, that's independent of, of having a sibling that's very close to you. And also being attuned to, right? If parents are very attuned to children, they tend to be more differentiated and develop a sense of who they are. Another question here. Why do people keep going back to their exes after breaking up? Why do people keep going back to their exes after breaking up? Well, this question is a little funny because, one, not everyone does. Obviously, most people, when they break up, they don't go back to their exes, but some do. But your question is, you know, why do, pe- why do people keep going back to their exes? So in that question, in, the implication is it's a bad thing to go back to your ex which isn't inherently true. You can certainly go back to your ex and everything's fine. Life is messy. And that that's what I always tell people. I would tell friends and fan, and clients when they would break up with someone and they would go back and they'd sheepishly tell me, yeah, I'm back with the person. I would say, hey, do never apologize for going back to this person. Uh, this is your life and life is messy and you're fine. I will never judge you for making a choice like that, unless I, th- I unless I thought that you know the ex was completely abusive. So, um, life is messy and it's fine, <laughs> and love is messy, and most people don't post on Instagram about when their life is messy in this way. Most people don't like to talk about it because they're shamed. And again, there's this notion similar to dating. After a certain period of time, there's this notion that when you break up, it has to be clean break. Everyone's always like, "Got to be, got to be a clean break." And certainly, that can be best. But let me let me give you a scenario where it's actually not best. So, you're in a long term relationship, and you've been together for five years, and things are just getting kind of stale, and you're fighting a little bit more, and you find both people find themselves like thinking about breaking up and maybe being with other people. And, but they're not sure because, you know, they're really good friends and they still have a connection. They're thinking, they're both thinking, well, is this just what five year long relationships look like? And they don't really know. And so they have a big fight and they break up and they're like, okay, you know, good. We were both, you know, yeah, I was thinking about breaking up too. Okay. I was too. Okay. We break up. So you break up. And then a few months later, or, you know, a few weeks later, you're, uh, the two of them are lonely and they kind of think, well, you know, maybe I was a little too hasty. I really miss that person. And they get back with that person and they're like, I'm sorry for breaking up. And, you know, I, 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 I was just in a bad mood and let's, let's, let's get things back on track. Let's, let's go to therapy. Okay. And then things are good for a bit. And then six months later it gets stale again and distance you know, creeps in. And after a few months, boom, break up again. And then for a couple months, they're apart. But they really start to do some soul searching at that point. Maybe they both go into therapy and they're just like, yeah. And they say, you know, maybe it could have worked with that. Maybe I could have made it work with that person. Maybe I was a little too hasty. They get back together. Okay. So 
Is that a bad situation? Are those two people like terrible people for getting back together with their exes? No, they're fine. <laughs> you know, they don't know what's, they don't know the right path in life. And none of us do really. And especially in situations like that. So getting back to your, with your ex can, can absolutely be fine. But what I'm guessing you're asking, uh, dear listener, is why do people, pe- why do people keep going back to abusive exes after breaking up? or unhealthy relationships after breaking up. Well, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons. One is is a lot of people just aren't ready to break up. And this is something that I discovered early in my career, which was that from, I noticed this pattern in my clients that, uh, this is individual therapy, that a client would come into therapy and they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be thinking about divorce, but they would be complaining about their spouse. And I would listen and I'd validate and we'd talk about it. And I knew it well enough to like stay away from talking about divorce explicitly. But um, in my head, I'm like, oh, I wonder if they're heading toward breakup. I don't know. You know, we'll see. Usually I'm on relationship side. I'm trying to enhance relationships. But then a couple of years would go by and the complaints would get more severe from the individual client. And then a couple of years would go by and... So now we're five years into therapy and the client would say something. And this is like a 45-year-old client, been in a marriage for 20 years or something. And the client would say, after five years of therapy, they'd say, you know, I think I want to get a divorce. And from the first time I would hear that, it would be another one to five years of therapy before they even really decided to pursue the divorce. And then it would be another couple years to actually work out the divorce. So what I found out was that from the time, particularly in long-term relationships, from the time that people think about leaving really seriously, even saying the D word, the divorce word, to the time they actually left someone, it could be five to 10 years. So um, my point is, is that some people will go back to their ex or won't leave their current partner when they when everyone thinks they should, including themselves, because it just takes a long time to adjust to that idea. It, it just takes a long time. It takes a long time to know for sure what's happening. It takes a long time to explore. It takes a long time to get up the nerve. You know, there's just a lot of things that have to happen. Another thing is that um, some people are extremely dependent and they have a hard time being alone, so they'll go back to their exes. Some people lack a self, lack a connection with the self. And so when they break up, you know, they know enough to break up, but then when after they leave, they they don't really know what to do with themselves. And so they'll go back to the relationship. Drug addiction is another reason as to why people go back to unhealthy relationships. Financial dependency. They have children together, and they're just like, hey, let's really try to make this work. Um, fear of dating is another reason why people would go back to an unhealthy relationship. Familiarity, confusing drama for love, uh, sexual attraction. Sometimes you're just extremely sexually attracted to your ex. You just can't, you just can't not be with them sexually. And so you end up getting back together. And possessiveness is another reason why people would go back to their exes when they don't want to. All right, this next question What's one psychotherapy theoretical orientation or technique that intrigues you, but you've never gotten around to learning about or trying? Bonus points for explaining why you never got around to it. So for me, it would be Jungian. Uh, It's the one theoretical orientation that 
kind of intrigues me, not terribly, but I definitely never got around to learning about or trying it. I know a lot of people love it, and I, I have colleagues of mine who are fully into the Jungian world. But um, I think, you know, so you're asking bonus points for explaining why we never got around to it, why I never got around to it, is one, because it's very big. Jungian is a very big theory and lots of aspects to it, very deep and complicated. And so it, it doesn't lend itself to like a deep dive, for example. Like you've never heard me talk or, or plan on a deep dive on Jungian because it would take too long for me to investigate and I'd probably get it wrong anyway. The other reason why I've never looked into Jungian is because when I have, you know, I've, I've, I've studied Jung, I've studied, people have close to me have explained to me what Jung is, Jungian therapy is. I've read books on Jung and, and the theory and the therapy. And every time I read about it, it just doesn't resonate with me. Every time I learn about it, I'm like, yeah, okay. I could see why that's cool for other people, but it's just not my style. Whereas other theories, most of the other theories, uh, if when I learn even a little bit about it, I'm like, yeah, 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 that fits with me. Like when I first learned about object relations and psychodynamic uh, therapy and, and systems theory, those theories instant and attachment theory for that matter, those theories instantly um, connected with me, even though I barely understood it. You know, so I just got a glimpse of what those theories were. And I was like, yep, those are me. Jungian theory has never done that to me. Every time I hear about Jung, Jungian theory, I'm just, I'm just like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Not, not for me. Uh, another question. How do you know when a relationship is, is the right one for you? How do you know when, when a relationship is the right one for you? Well, here are some questions to ask yourself. And this, I've had many clients ask me this question. How do I know if this is the one? So ask yourself, how do you feel when, that, when you're with them? How do you feel? What emotions do you have? And again, you have to have a connection with the self to be able to even answer that question. How do they compare to other relationships? Now, I know that you're, you're not supposed to compare. And I'm always like, why not? <laughs> why, why not compare? Uh, if you're in a relationship and things are going really well, and you're like, huh, all the other people I've gone out with have been completely not good for me. This one is much better for me. Why not compare? Uh, I, I really have no idea why people will say don't compare. <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's a shortcut, you know, because you're in a relationship and your partner's mad at you, and your partner's like, you know, my my other girlfriend was so much more open than you are about this. So in that instance. Yeah, you're quote unquote comparing, but what that's not the comparing is not the problem. The problem is is you're triangulating and you're putting someone down instead of just saying, Hey, this is what I want. So I think that's why people say don't compare. But anyway, if you're in a relationship and for example, and you're like, This relationship is about middle of the road in terms of how good it makes me feel. Because I've had other relationships in the past that felt better. I've had other relationships in the past that felt worse. And that kind of gives you an idea of, of whether or not they're the right one for you. Now, maybe you're ready for an average relationship. I don't know. But at least having that comparison helps. That's why 
when we first start dating at the age of 13 years old, we're not very good at relationships because we have nothing to compare to. <laughs> and we think that that person is the love of our life when, you know, 99.99% of the time, it's not the love of our life. We just have never known any different. Another question to ask yourself is, do they listen to you? Very important question to ask. Does your partner listen, truly listen? Because if they don't, you know, it tells you something. But if they do, then they might be the right one for you. Another question to ask yourself, when something happens in your life, do you immediately tell them about it? This is a barometer or a gauge about how much you like this person. You can really tell who you like and who you feel safe with. Uh, not all the time, but often when you just notice when something important happens in your life, who do you reach out to first? Who do you text? Who do you call? That tells you something. And who do you not reach out to? Another question here is, do they make you a priority? Because that's important as well, similar to do they listen to you? All right, another question here. What's the difference between preoccupied attachment style and borderline? This is a great question. And one that I've talked about before, but I think I should explain again, because a lot of times I will just use them interchangeably. You know, I'll, I'll, pre, I'll do preoccupied borderline. I'll just even say in the same sentence because they, they are very similar. So th the way that I describe it is that att preoccupied attachment style and borderline personality disorder, they overlap a lot, even according to research. So it's not just me conceptualizing it. You know, the way it's conceptualized in the clinical literature and in empirical findings is that a lot of people who qualify for preoccupied attachment, um, or I should say a lot of people with borderline also have preoccupied attachment. Um, and a percentage of people with preoccupied attachment are at least on the borderline spectrum. But, you know, it kind of depends on the definition of the user. Because preoccupied attachment isn't, you don't take a blood test for it. It's a conceptualization borderline as well. But they definitely overlap. Um, and with disorganized attachment as well. So Borderline individuals tend to be either preoccupied or disorganized attachment style. It'd be really weird to find a borderline person characterized as secure or avoidant, <laughs> for sure. Um, now, so the overlap between preoccupied and borderline is that they both are preoccupied with abandonment, right? They're both anxious and hypervigilant about relationship loss. They both can be demanding and or controlling as a result of being triggered regarding their anxiety about losing people. And they both can be very easily jealous. So preoccupied and borderline individuals share a lot of those qualities. But with borderline personality disorder, there's probably more suffering than just... Because the, the thing that we have to say is, okay, what, what, cat, what buckets are we putting people in? So there are three buckets. You have the preoccupied bucket, you have the preoccupied and borderline bucket, and you have the borderline non-preoccupied bucket, which would be hard to find. You could find borderline disorganized bucket. So I, I guess there's three buckets. There's preoccupied, no borderline. There's preoccupied and borderline bucket. And then there's the borderline disorganized bucket. And so with those who are just in the preoccupied bucket without borderline, they probably aren't suffering as much as those with borderline, depending on the level of recovery that the borderline person is going through. There's with people with borderline who are either disorganized or preoccupied, there's probably more pronounced symptoms. 
they're more afraid, they're more jealous, they're more demanding, they're more controlling, they're, they hate themselves more, they have more unstable relationships, that kind of thing. And, uh, and definitely a disconnection with the self, with borderline. So you can be preoccupied and have a sense of who you are. You can also be preoccupied and not have a sense of who you are, in which case you probably are on at least one of the, the you know, personality disorder spectrums at that point. Borderline, histrionic, even narcissism. But with, uh, with borderline, you definitely struggle with a sense of who you are because of the way, the, the severity or the quality of the mistreatment growing up facilitated um, all those internalized things, plus a lack of a, an, a, an opportunity to v- develop a sense of who you are. So those are, those are the differences. Essentially, you know, in short, borderline individuals... Uh, uh, if you're if you're diagnosed with borderline, you're suffering a lot more. You have much more pronounced symptoms. If you just have preoccupied attachment, you probably have some of the borderline symptoms, but they but not as many and not as severe. But it kind of, it just kind of depends on the conceptualization. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if someone that I assessed, I would assess as having preoccupied attachment, but no personality disorder, but that individual was suffering quite a bit depending on their circumstances. So, you know, again, we're talking about conceptualizations and constructs. We're not talking about actual things when we're talking about these labels. All right, next question. A lot of dating channels on YouTube talk about how-tos of dating. What's the best way to see whether or not they give sound advice? Um, So you're saying that a lot of YouTube channels talk about the how-tos of dating. What's the best way to see whether or not they give sound advice? Well, I would check to see if these channels give the typical bad advice, uh, cultural stigma, or pseudoscientific notions that I hear when people talk about how to date well. One is what I was referred to earlier is, you know, avoid rebounds, this kind of thing, which is a complete oversimplification based on what I was saying earlier. If the YouTube channel talks a lot about quote unquote narcissists, I would be skeptical because the conceptualization of a narcissist is so strange to me on the internet. I really have no idea what people are talking about. I think they're talking about self-centered people. And I think actually they're mistaking uh, people who are self-centered or narcissists with people that hurt them. You know, I've said this before that we've all experienced. uh, So uh, let me tell like uh, a possibility. So if you, take someone who is 16, um, you know, 18 years old and they're in a relationship and all of a sudden their partner breaks up with them. You know, they think their relationship's going well. Then all of a sudden their partner just breaks up with them one day. And this uh, individual is just like really sad, really distraught, keeps reaching out to their former partner say, Hey, let me back. Let me, you know, how come you left me? I understand. Like you just broke up with me. It was so it was so abrupt. It was so mean. And the person never responds. So the way that that feels is the other person doesn't care about your feelings. And if they don't care about, if, if they don't care about my feelings, then they must be only concerned with their own feelings. If they're only concerned with their own feelings, then they're very self-centered. And if they're only self-centered, they must, they must be a narcissist. There are so many other possibilities to that situation. There's so many other possibilities to the situation that led to that result. 
the person breaking up could be terrified of disapproval, could have terrible guidance about how to break up with someone. So, and have nothing and have no narcissistic qualities at all. So anyway, if you hear any kind of YouTube channel talking about narcissists, this narcissist, that particularly if it's a non clinician that doesn't know anything about narcissistic personality disorder, I'd be a little skeptical. It doesn't mean that they're all their advice is bad, but I'd just be like, eh. another sign is sex shaming. You know, any, any YouTube channel that will shame anything, you know, gender or, um, or any kind of section, you know, you'll, you'll see YouTube channels where people will give advice and they'll say like, you know, if, if this, if that, if you start dating a guy and he starts talking about doing this and that in the bed, then you should run. And it's, I'm always like, but what if she's into that? <laughs> you know, like, how, how do you know that she's not into it? So, um, and what's wrong with having a kink? There's nothing wrong with having a kink. There's something wrong with imposing your kink on someone, for sure. But that's just a broader topic of imposing anything on anyone, whether it's a kink or, you know, vanilla sex. Anyway, so anyone that's sex shamed, I would be sex shaming and sex negative. I'd be I'd be skeptical about. Another sign to look for is shaming personality traits, or even just behaviors like um, a very very common. you know, how to date advice thing that people will say is if you go on a date and, and he starts crying on the first date, or if she starts crying the first date, major red flags, I'm always like, and I've talked about this before, but why <laughs> is that, is that science based that we, we're just so, we're such children when it comes to this sort of thing. Okay. Now, if you go on a date and he or she or they start crying and you don't like that and you don't want to see him again, totally fine. That's up to you. But to say that in the history of humankind, no one has ever gone on a date and cried and had it go well is ridiculous. There's a lot to cry about, particularly in the world right now. So for people not to cry occasionally, there's something wrong with them. And for healthy people, when they occasionally cry, it it might coincide with being on a first date. You sit down on a first date with someone and you start talking about life and the world and how you feel about things, which hopefully you can do because you're bonding and you're, you might be falling in love. You're going to talk about that, those kind of stuff. Uh, tears are going to happen, whether it's tears of joy or tears of empathy or tears of, of loss or grief or tears of hearing a love song or whatever. What's wrong with crying? And so... It'd be similar to saying like, well, you know, if he laughs on the first date or something wrong, got to run. It's just an emotional expression, people. Crying is fine. So if someone cries on the first date, to me, if someone came home from, they, oh, how'd the date go? And they, oh, you know, he started crying. I'd be like, marry him. <laughs> He's He has the courage and the emotional uh, health to be able to cry. He's exhibiting his extreme health. Now, that's not necessarily true. You know, he could be a complete nutbag. Who, who knows? But... Just looking at someone's, whether they cry on the first date. The, the other issue, similar to this, is talking about your ex on the first date. People that never talk about your ex on the first date. Why not? Why not? What's wrong with talking about your ex? Now, again, this is a black and white thing that people do. And I think the rule began for a good reason, but it's being overly applied. For example, the bad situation is you go on a first date and you're meeting someone new. And as you're meeting, you know, uh, you're meeting someone new, you 
start immediately thinking about your past relationship, you know, this starts to creep up in your mind. You still have some grief around that. And you, you just feel compelled to talk about it and say, Oh yeah, you know what? You're, you're, you're such a, you, you, you reminded me of my ex, you know, she, she was mean to me. Let me tell you like a whole bunch of stories. Now, the problem with that is that the person you're dating doesn't want to hear about your ex. Usually sometimes they do. That's the other possibility here. But let's just say, you know, law of averages, most people you're dating, they're not excited to hear about your exes. One, because it's not really fun conversation. And two, it's it alerts the other person to the fact that you were once with someone else. And it you just kind of want to be in the moment. You want to have this kind of nice romantic moment that it's just about the two of you. Anyway, so yeah, don't do that. But let's say that you're on a first date. And the two of you are, you know, getting into some real heavy topics and you're really enjoying each other. You're really connecting. And they might even ask you, they say, you know, uh, so what was, you know, what was the best concert you went to? What was, what's the, what food do you like the best? You know, what are your parents like? Uh, What was the, you know, the last relationship you were in? And you're like, oh, well, okay, let me tell you, it was seven years and it was hard. It was a tough breakup. And, uh, you know, sad and I, you know, I kind of miss them, but I think it's for the best. And, um, I'm glad I'm out on a date with someone. What's wrong with saying that? (laughs) Like these rules of like, never talk about your ex, or if he talks about his ex, there's something wrong with him. Like, no, just so any YouTube channel that starts to go into those absolutes, I, I just, I would be skeptical about everything they say. Uh, another thing along these lines is like avoid men who are too close to their mothers. This is referring to what I was talking about earlier. And there's literal, you, you can Google that online. Just, you know, just dating advice, you know, one of the, a frequent item is be like, oh, avoid men who are too close to their mothers. Why? Why? <laughs> What's wrong with a dude being close to his mom? Like, uh, is it inherently a barrier to your relationship? No. Do you, and I think it's based on this notion that, uh, this ridiculous American notion that when you get married, it's supposed to be just you and you and your partner against the world. No one can live that way, or very few people can live that way. And I'd venture to say no one can live that way. You cannot live on one relationship. You cannot live through your marriage only. You have to have other relationships, including perhaps your mother. So if you meet, meet a man and he's very close to his mother, uh, are you supposed to be like, I won't compete with that? Like, I, I'm so insecure that I'm, I must act like I'm a cult leader and separate him from his family to be with me? Like, come on, stop it. Another thing I would look for on a YouTube channel to be skeptical about is if they talk about body language. This is a, I'm finding a big thing on YouTube that has no scientific basis. It is complete pseudoscience. There is no evidence. And we have tried, believe me, as psychologists, we have looked into this for decades trying to determine, you know, eye movements or how you're sitting or the gestures that you have or where you touch yourself on the face, associating that with different internal things, you know, whether or not someone's lying or um, this sort of thing. There's no, there's no associations. Now, if you really know someone, then you might be able to read their body language because you know them through experience. You know, oh, when they do that, that means this. 
But just walking in off the street and just looking at someone on YouTube or on a date, being able to gauge the real them, no, no. Imagine, I, I always say this to people, like with polygraphs, if you know, if lie detector tests work, imagine if this was true. Imagine if we had a device that could detect lies. Imagine if we had a scientific, surefire way of telling what people were really thinking by their body language. We would be able to solve so many problems. We wouldn't need the legal system. We wouldn't need to go to court. We would just, you know, use these scientific methods to determine if someone's telling the truth or not or what's really going on in their mind. But, but alas, it doesn't exist. And that's why we have the legal system and juries and investigations and lawyers and judges, you know, because we just don't have those things. They don't exist. So believe me. Now, there's some science around body language um, and lie detection, but it is 0.1% of the uh, what people are talking about. My dog is barking. Probably a delivery. Another huge red flag, just massive red flag on a YouTube channel for any reason, whether it's how to how to date or anything, is when they say men are from you know Mars, women are from Venus, this kind of stuff. Not that specifically, but when they're like, oh, men think in, in boxes and women think in waves or men, uh, you know, think they're, they're visual creatures and women are emotional. Men are logical and women are emotional. Men like to be with friends because of their usefulness and women like to be with friends for connection and this guy. And it's like, okay, maybe socialization puts pushes people a little bit, but a lot of these statements on the internet and in life are completely pseudoscientific and not based in reality at all. It's just based on people's uh, essentially like the oppression of the genders of just putting them in boxes and not allowing people to be who they are instead of um, our prescription for them. So any, and a lot of dating sites will do this. A lot of dating sites, you know, if it's a magazine for girls There'll be all this, you know, well, you know, boys, they're gross and they like farts and, you know, you have to, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe there's a generalization you can make sometimes, but um, I, I'd just be real skeptical of stuff like that. Anyway, all right, well, I didn't get to all the questions that I had sort of, I only got to about half of them, actually. <laughs> As usual, I always think, oh, I should be able to get through all these if I keep it short. But I always get so long-winded. I don't know if I can help it. There's just always so much to say. Thank God I have a podcast. Otherwise, I'd be bothering my wife even more with my pontificating. <laughs> all right, everyone. Uh, like I said, if because I, I keep forgetting to announce it. If you are a patron and, and you can become an annual patron, just open the app or whatever I think there's a way to actually, let me, there's gotta be a way, right? Let me look. I'll do it while I'm on the air. That's, that's a good thing. That's a good use of my time. Right. Um, let's see if I go to this. Oh yeah. And I go to, so I'm, I, you know, I subscribe to something. Let's see. Uh, so I'm on Patreon. I'm going to the thing. I'm going to the tiers. I can't find it. Um, oh, okay. So if you go to, our page on on Patreon, and you go on Overview, and then you go on Tiers, then you can, there's a button that you should be able to scroll down to that says, 
um, or save, you know, X percent if you pay annually. It's 10% for us. And you can actually up, go up a tier if you wanted to. Um, so, uh, so yeah, do that. <laughs> I'm glad I looked that up. All right, everyone out there, please take care of yourself and take care of others because we all deserve it. We really, really do.